You know, um, I was prepping this message uh, yesterday and last night, and I was thinking, you know, I don't know that everybody's going to agree with me on this one, and, and of course, we've always said over and over, that's, that's okay, you know, but it's going to be really interesting to me to see how this lands with you, and uh, I'm going to put it out there anyway, and let's see, let's, let's see what we can do, all right? Have you ever wondered why the world is the way that it is? <laughs> I mean, couldn't it have been some other way? Why is the world the way it is? Now, I've been asking this question and looking at this for most of my life, I think. Um, and I know, I know that many of you are asking this question now because the, there's been an uptick in counseling that I've been doing lately. And I know that the questions that are coming from those who are calling is kind of implied at least. What is going on? Why is the world going through this? What is happening? Where is God in all of this? And, and you know, asking those basic questions. Why is the world the way it is? You know? you know, when you think about it, why is there no free lunch? I mean, is that really fair that there would be no free lunch? Except maybe in the school system you get the free lunches there. But there's no free lunch. Why is there entropy? You know, why does everything move from order to chaos and not in the other direction? Why doesn't my room just get cleaner all by itself? Why does it always have to get dirtier? Why do we have to work in order to eat? Why are we always pushing the rock up the hill, and as soon as we stop pushing, it rolls back down again? Couldn't there have been another way to do this? Have you ever thought about this? Why do we have to eat other living things in, so, in order to stay alive? Why does something have to die? so that we can live. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, I know, the circle of life, Elton John and everything, but I mean, really, is that the only way that this could have happened? <laughs> Marianne and I are, are watching the, a show where you know it's got angels and demons and all sorts of things, and in this one angel um, was uh, punished by being turned into a human, and after a few days, he kind of looks at one of the characters and he said, do you ever get tired of urination? You know? Don't you? I mean, why does it have to be this way? Who said the rules had to be such and so? Why is there no world peace? Why does every person who was ever born in every generation have to start from scratch? As if memory washed before they come into being, and making the same mistakes that the generation before made, and learning so little at the beginning of their lives, at the beginning of their generation, to make what we would see as more substantive changes. Why aren't we standing more on the shoulders of each other? Aren't there some, like, at least some basic informational things that we could be born with that would give us a leg up as, as we start, you know? And why, of course, is there so much evil in the world? Why is there death? Is death really necessary? Why is there illness? Why is there deformity? Why is there unfairness, oppression, racism, greed, why do all these things have to be? And if we're saying that God created this, how do we square that? How do we resolve that if we're also saying in the same breath that God is good and God is all-powerful? This is the, probably the oldest question in the book. Job is all about this. We've been thinking about this probably since we were painting on cave walls. Why does the world have to be this way? Couldn't it have been some other way? Now, think about it. Wouldn't you have made it some other way? I mean, if you were in charge, 
Wouldn't you have created it another way? Wouldn't you have wanted to make it better than it is? Better than you're experiencing it? Fairer? More equal? More loving? Maybe no circle of life? Wouldn't that be nice? Well, of course, humans have been doing this since the beginning of time. We have been trying to create something, create societies that would blunt the dangers that the world presents to us and create some security within those dangers. And we've been doing that since the beginning. We've been gathering in groups since the Stone Age, right? We've been sharing labor you know, making distinctions of labor. We have been having chieftains and shamans and kings and priests and emperors and, and everything that we can think of to cover both the secular needs and the spiritual needs of our communities and trying to create systems that will give us that security, that will give us a better world at least within our little corner. There's many systems that have come and gone and stayed uh, over the course of the millennia that humans have been on this earth. But they all have the same aim. They want to make the world better. But not always for everyone, right? Mostly it's for the powerful that the world gets better. And then many people are left out in the cold. Now in the West, here especially in the last... 500 years or so. Uh, monarchs and emperors have been giving away more and more to parliaments and presidents. There has been a shift toward more representative rule by the people. The, pe the idea of democracy, the idea of people's rule, but usually by some sort of representative body. And it looks good on paper, but has it really made the world that much better? I mean, here we are in 2020 with most of the Western countries under some form of, of democratic or representative republic rule or something like that, and yet look where we are. You're still asking the question, why does the world have to be this way? And so to make a vast oversimplification here, today, over the last past 200 years, two main philosophies have kind of come to the fore these two philosophies that are geared toward trying to make the world better. And it may seem strange that, that in a Sunday morning on a pulpit, I'm going to talk about these two philosophies, but it's what everybody is fighting about. It's what the issue has come down to. And we made a pledge, or at least I did, you just had to come along for the ride, at the beginning of all this, that we're going to have messages that are really relevant and specific to what we're going through. And so I wanted to talk about these two philosophies. You know, so stay with me for a little bit. I'm working toward a larger point. But these two philosophies of how to make the world better within a society boil down to one thing. And this is what's called the means of production. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. But who controls, who owns the means of production in a society? What's the means of production? It's the means of producing the wealth of a society. It's a means of producing all the resources. It's a means of producing what everybody needs in order to live, to survive, and eventually to thrive. It's the industries and the companies that produce all the goods and services within a society. Who owns that? Because who owns that is going to control the levers of power, obviously, in a society. And is going to control how 
every member of society shares in that wealth, in those goods and services that are being produced. And so the one philosophy, the first philosophy we're going to talk about, says that for the greater good and for the good of all the people, that individual and private citizens should own the means of production. All right? That's called capitalism. That's what the United States has been based on, a free market system. The private citizens own the means of production. Enshrined in our Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution is the idea of, of private property rights, that the government exists in order to ensure those rights and ensure the, what is it, the uh, pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and so on and so forth. And so that is one philosophy, and it sounds really good on paper, because what it's trying to do is empower the people, empower individuals to give the best motivation for innovation, for growth, for, for uh, what's, the, what's the word when you come up with something? Why can't I come up with the word? Um, I'm looking for the word. I'm not finding the word. Uh, invention. You know, it's, it's giving, it's, it's like a petri dish for growing all these things. And that looks great on paper. But what does capitalism lead to? It leads to vast inequity within the people, among the people within the system. There are haves and there are have-nots. There are those who are going to rise. And there are those who are going to be oppressed, those who are going to be used in order for those who are rising to get wherever they are going. And... That oppression is what the second philosophy is trying to alleviate. The second philosophy says this means of production shouldn't be owned by the individual people. It should be owned by all the people collectively, which means that the state needs to own the means of production because that is what represents the people as a collective. And if that state owns the means of production, nationalizes the means of production, then they can distribute the wealth evenly to everyone in the society so that it's fair. That's called socialism. All right? It has several other words. Like I said, this is a vast oversimplification, but just to get the point across, socialism also looks good on paper. But what is the downside? What are the unintended consequences? What are the side effects? Just like there were in capitalism, what are the side effects of socialism? It's that it requires absolute authority to enforce to nationalize, to grab all of those levers of power, the, the means of production, the industries, and then to distribute the wealth. And once you have absolute control of the state, inefficiencies can creep in. It can stifle the production and the innovation and the invention that we were talking about. And eventually you end up back to oppression again and inequity again. This is where the fight lies in those two philosophies. Who is going to own the means of production? For 240 years, individual people have. And yes, there are mitigating factors. You try to regulate the, the, the runaway greed and the way that capitalism will take off. And in socialism, you're also, there's different ways of trying to mitigate the bad effects of socialism. But that is the fight right now. That's what's going on. And there are so many angry voices so many fighting over these issues, and we don't have a really good handle on what those issues are. We say it's a fight between right and left. We, we bring it down to that. You know where right and left comes from? It comes from the run-up to the French Revolution. 
That's not that long ago. The French Revolution was after ours by about a decade. But in the National Assembly that was formed as, as in the year before the revolution actually started, those who were supporting the king and the church were sitting on the right side of the president of the assembly, and those who were supporting the people in the revolution were sitting on the left side. And that's how it started. And so right and left has to do with the supposed support for the people or the supposed support for the powers that be. And so that has morphed into Republican and Democrat and left and right. And here we are today, writing, right meaning capitalism, left meaning socialism, and nationalized industry. Both systems aim to make the world better. They're aiming to make the world more secure for the people in their society. They just have very different ways of going about it. Both look good on paper, right? But there are the side effects. There are those negative, unintended consequences. Now, if we are in this fight, and we are, whether we like it or not, if we can stay in that liminal space, if we can stay in the middle and look at both as dispassionately and as objectively as possible, then we can see that both are trying to hit the same aim, but we're going to need to decide if we think that the side effects and the negative consequences tilt the scale in one side or another. But here's the thing that we mustn't do, and is done all the time in any debate that you'll see on the media, is that we can't compare the ideal of one system, how it looks on paper, with the reality and the negative consequences and the side effects of the other system. And that's what is always being done. Both systems look good on paper. Both systems have laudable aims. But both systems have unintended consequences. And that's what we need to compare to see if this thing is best for us as we try to make this decision. Trying to stay in that liminal place where we can really see all sides of the argument, be willing to criticize our own side, be willing to give credit where it's due, and find truth in the other side when we see it. If we could all do that, it would make a huge difference in the way that we go about whatever transition we're going through in this country. But I want to jump off of that now and make a much larger point and a much more spiritual point. Thank God, right? We're trying to fix the world. We've been doing it since the beginning. We're still trying to do it. We're obsessed with trying to fix the world, save the world. Our young people, if you haven't talked to any young people now, are feeling like, We've already blown it. We mean our generation. And they're the ones that are going to have to come in and save the world and fix the world. So here comes another generation running off to try to fix the world. But have we asked ourselves why the world is the way that it is? Why is the world the way that it is? Why does it need fixing? What's going on here? Now, in Christian theology, very simple. The world is fallen. <laughs> it's because of Adam and Eve doing the rebellion that they did against God in the garden that we have the world that we have. That this isn't what God intended. This is what happens when we are disobedient. That's one way of looking at it. But the Jews look at it so differently. And some people say, why should I care what the Jews think? Well, the Jews wrote our scriptures. If our faith in the West here as Christians is based on those Jewish scriptures, then the, what they thought, I would think, has some relevance. See, the Jews believe that everything that God created is good. It's coded right into Genesis. It's all good. What's not so obvious to us is that when God created 
the heavens and the earth. God actually builded the heavens and the earth. And the words there all relate to a nest. The Jews looked at all creation as ken, as a nest. That's, that's the word for nest. And God was the builder, the kana. And they imagined God building the nest the same way that they watched the birds build their nests. You know, pulling from here and there and getting all the materials and making this perfect environment for the nestlings. A perfect place for them to be able to grow, mature, learn, be nourished, and get everything that they needed to be able to fly off and fulfill their purpose in life. And the Jews looked at this world in exactly the same way. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, it was heinous. But at the same time, it was builded by God to be this perfect environment for us to be able to fly, to, for us to fulfill our purpose as human beings, to do everything that we needed to do just as it is. Is this world supposed to be without conflict? Is this world supposed to be ideal in the way that we would think of ideal? Are we supposed to be fixing it? Does it need to be fixed? Now, obviously, love requires us to try to alleviate any suffering that we encounter every moment of the day. But that's not the same thing. How much of the world can we really expect to change? Even as we alleviate suffering where we are. When I started working in Mexico for Children of the Americas, and I would go down and I would serve maybe two dozen children, two dozen families. At the same time, this is back in the 80s, I knew in the back of my mind that that same day that I served maybe two dozen kids, 50,000 children died in that same period of time from vaccine-preventable disease and malnutrition. It was difficult in those first years for me to square those two things. What difference did it make if I went and gave peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to 12 kids, 24 kids, when 50,000 died? And until I was able to square that, to realize it didn't matter what was happening out there in the place where I couldn't see. It only mattered for the face of the child that was right in front of me. When I finally got that, I was able to work with that organization for 30-plus years and love what I was doing, realizing still, of course, I wasn't changing the system. I wasn't changing the world. But I was helping one child's world change, giving one child a chance to change. It's a very different thing for us to realize that even as we do what love requires, it's a different thing than changing the system. How do we continue to work to alleviate suffering, to maintain the balance in love that we need to have when we realize the world is still not changing. If our purpose is to change the world, to change the system, to fix it, to make it ideal as we think of it, then guess what? No one who has ever lived on this planet has been successful, has been purposeful, has fulfilled his or her purpose if that is our purpose. And so often we think and we talk as if that is our purpose, to change the world and fix the world. But nobody has done it. Not even Jesus. Think about it. Jesus, who embodied love, who helped everyone that he met, did not make 
any kind of dent in the Roman world of his time. He didn't even make a dent in the Jewish world of his time. But I don't know that he was even trying. In fact, I am more and more sure that that wasn't what he was about. Jesus is often looked at and called a social revolutionary. And I think that's usually by other social revolutionaries and social justice warriors because obviously everybody wants to co-opt Jesus. And you can look at him legitimately and think that, but let's take a little closer look and see what was Jesus really about? What was he trying to do? If we take a look at Matthew 26, starting at verse 6, this is a famous story. When Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. There's the fix the world attitude, right? But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, whatever this, whenever this gospel is preached to the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. You will always have the poor with you. He rebukes the other disciples for saying the money could have been put to a better use for the poor. Now, what Jesus is not saying is don't bother caring for the poor, right? He gave his life in service of others, both those who were materially poor and in need of all kinds. But what he is telling us is that the inequities of life, the world as we look at it, will always be there to address. It's going to be there. But don't let those inequities keep you or be an excuse not to act in love intimately right now, right here, in this moment for the person who's right in front of you. Mother Teresa had a great saying. She said, it's easier to send a cup of rice halfway around the world than it is to love the people in your own household. Let that sink in for a second. It is so easy to keep the needs of the world in the abstract. It's so easy to keep them at a distance, at arm's length, or at a planet's length, if you will. Rather than see that the people right in front of you are the ones that we can really help. The people right in front of us is where our love can flow to automatically. And if we are using those big causes and those big issues to keep us from, as an excuse, from just doing what needs to be done or allowing ourselves to be so immersed in those issues that we can't see the need right in front of us, we're missing the whole point of what is going on here. Jesus absolutely honored and elevated all of the marginalized people of his time and everyone that came in front of him any group, any person, but he did it by honoring and elevating the individuals that he met within those groups, whether they were women, whether they were children, whether they were poor, or as the Jews said, amha aretz, which means people of the land or people who lived outside the law, the Gentiles, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He honored every single one of them, but he wasn't working for the groups systemically. 
He didn't change the system itself. And apparently he wasn't trying. Take a look at Mark 12, starting at verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Boy, are they setting him up or what? You know? Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? So they butter him up, they put him on this big pedestal, and then they slam him with the question because they know whatever way he answered, he's in deep water. If he says, yes, pay the tax, then he's going to have all the people who are incensed at the boot that Rome has on their necks. And if he says, don't pay the tax, then he's going to have the Romans stringing him up on a cross at the first available opportunity. They think, we've really got him now, right? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one, a coin. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. What is Jesus doing here? He's staying out of the political fray. He's saying, basically, don't fight the system. Work within it. Work within the system to find the connection with your father. That's the issue here. That's what I'm about. That's what I'm trying to teach you. It's not about fighting the bigger fight until we have fought and won the interior fight. And this is what Paul was talking about. Romans 13. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? Just to refresh. Oh, wait. I skipped one. Let me get to that. Work within the system, Jesus is saying. Find connection with the Father. Why? John 18, verse 33. Therefore, Pilate again went into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, You are the king of the Jews? This is right in the trial, after the trial, before the crucifixion. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is making a distinction here. He's not here to fight City Hall, to fight the big fight, to tumble the levers of power in the favor of the groups that are being marginalized. He is here to allow and help and model and show the way for people to be able to find their connection, their heart connection with their Father. And from there, spread their love in whatever way works for them. And this is exactly what Paul was saying at Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Remember how we had to kick that one around for a while? Really? Everyone should be in subjection to the government authorities? For there is no authority except from God, and those which, are, which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. This is an outrageous statement. If you think about some of the governments that have graced the face of the earth that needed to be toppled, that were toppled, that expensive and bloody wars were fought in order to topple. But here is Paul saying, just obey them. Remember, we talked about context. The time was short in his estimation 
Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And there was oppression. Anything that they did was going to bring down the boot of either the Jews or the Romans in such a way that they wouldn't be able to continue to practice their faith in their communities, in their ecclesia, their gatherings. What Paul is saying is that you fight the interior revolution first. Remember he said, if you're a slave, stay a slave. But be such a slave as Christ would be. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. If you're a woman, stay in the cultural subjection to which you find yourself. Outrageous statements by our standards. But he was trying to get the people to understand. In this place of subjection, in this place of submission, you will find the way to the humility, the vulnerability, and the sense of dependency that defines kingdom in a way that you won't from a dominant position. Use the situation you find yourself to fight that interior revolution and then turn your attention out to fight the exterior revolution, at least at the systemic level. But always we are giving our love, our support, and we're alleviating suffering wherever we find it as we go through life. This is what both Jesus and Paul are talking about. If we are going to change the world at all, it's only going to be when we have first conquered the revolution within. Because if we go and half-cocked and try to change the world without having changed ourselves, we're going to create more problems than we solve. We will be part of the problem. And that's what we're seeing around us with all those angry voices. People who haven't done the interior work, who haven't learned how to stay in liminal space, who haven't learned how to honor all sides of every argument and find the way through. Then James finally adds the capper. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. What is James saying? He's saying that our very purpose as humans, our perfection of our purpose as humans, is the endurance through the trials and the challenges that we face, not in eliminating the trials or the challenges we face, but to go through them We need those challenges and those trials. We need the world that produces and presents those challenges and those trials to us in order to achieve our purpose. The Jews had a concept of Satan that is so unlike ours, and I know we've talked about it before, but I'll throw it in here just as one more chink in the armor. They had the concept of Hasatan, the Satan, which literally meant the adversary or the opposition But their Hasatan, their idea, their concept of of Satan was that Satan was working with God. Satan was kind of God's employee, working to further God's purpose by making our freedom, our free will, our choices real by providing the alternate, providing what we shouldn't choose, providing the temptations, providing the challenges, providing the trials, providing the traumas that were a necessary function for our own growth and for our own purpose. What a different way to look at Satan. 
Satan was necessary. Satan was working with God. Satan couldn't oppose God because nothing can oppose God. But providing that alternative, still looking at a world that is the way that it should be because it's producing what we need to complete our faith. So interesting. Think of the people that you admire. Either people that you know or people that you have read about or know about in the media, whatever. But the ones that you admire, why do you admire them? Well, most likely because they're compassionate, because they're honest, because they're strong, because they have grace, because they have a sense of humor, because they have an intelligence, because they have a way of looking at issues and, and articulating them, but in a fair way. These people that you admire, these finest people that you know, invariably these are going to be people who have suffered. These are going to be people who have already endured through difficulties. These are going to be people who have not avoided them, but they keep showing up to the hard work day after day and have learned to love life as it is, as it presents to them, while continuing to work for the good of everyone. Most likely, the people you admire look something like that. But think of the people that you may know or have read about who have managed to avoid <laughs> life's challenges, who are maybe born with a silver spoon in their mouth, who, who have not gone through and suffered the kind of loss that challenges everything that you think you know and forces you then to move through that in such a way that you rebuild your internal world, who hasn't been hollowed out to create the space for another person to move in, for the compassion to be able to take its place. These people were going to lack the depth, lack the compassion, lack the humility, because life hasn't caught up to them yet. I want to brag on my wife here just for a second. She started working again, and... Uh, <laughs> If you know Marion at all, you know that she's the energizer buddy when it comes to work. She just works and works and works. And she's come home a few times and has been a little irritated because not everybody works as hard as she does, especially some of these new hires that are kind of goofing off and texting on their phone. And there's Marion doing her 12,000 steps for every shift and, and going from here and there and doing this. You know, and we've talked about it. She wouldn't be happy doing anything less because that's who she is. Now, I know Marion's story enough to know that her work ethic, her absolute devotion to the people that are in front of her comes from a life that has had many difficulties, many setbacks, many challenges, and it became the person that she is and the person that I admire. She'll do this whether anyone is looking or not because it's who she is. But she went through the gauntlet in order to get here. This is the kind of thing that we have to understand. Our view of why the world is as it is will change everything about the way that we approach it, the way that we approach our faith, the way that we approach these societal challenges. Even as we work to make the world better, what we believe about the nature of the world 
it's going to change the way that we do that. What if the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be? What if? It doesn't need any fixing. It is the nest. It is the perfect place for us to be able to do what we need to do as human beings. What if the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be? There was a South African musician that I just loved. His name is Johnny Clegg. I, I think he died recently. Just if, if you ever get a chance to listen to some Johnny Clegg, C-L-E-G-G, and he has one of the albums that I love the most. was called Cruel, Crazy, Beautiful World. I love the paradox of that. Cruel, crazy, beautiful world. He grew up in South Africa. He grew up during apartheid. He was one of the leading proponents of leading. The, he's a white person, but he grew up with a tribe. He spoke Swahili. He sung in Swahili, and he sung in English. It was just this beautiful mix. The cruel, crazy, beautiful world. He could see even in the unfinished business of his work with apartheid that there was beauty in the world, and he could celebrate it in his song, even as he sang the protest songs. But I love the, the way that he was able to bring all of that together. Can we begin to see some purpose in the pain, some purpose in the way that the world is? And if so, then we can begin to endure it, and not just endure it, not just survive it, but thrive and live in such a way that we can effectively alleviate the suffering of those who are around us, even as we realize the world is still as it is. What if our purpose isn't to change the world, but simply to keep showing up to the work of changing the world? Can you catch that? Our purpose isn't to change the world, but to keep showing up to the work of changing it. What if the purpose is realized? What if our purpose is realized in the work itself, not the outcome? I love Richard Rohr's idea of the task within the task. Even as we show up to do the work that we're showing up to do, whatever it is, whatever we seem, it seems best to us to do, realizing that whether we complete the task on the surface the task within the task is being completed, whether we even are aware of it or not. The connection that we are building, the endurance that we are building, the showing up, continuing to show up, the discipline, the devotion, that's the task within the task. That's the eternal part. Whatever other tasks we assign ourselves, they will be lost in time, but not the task within the task. What if the purpose is realized in the work itself and not the outcome? What if we can find meaning? What if we can find peace, beauty, in the midst of all of our unfinished business as we look at this world and realizing the world's not changing, but in relationship, everything is changing? What if there will always be unfinished business? What if we can only choose in this life to embrace life, even while the struggle continues? What if the only choice is to embrace the paradox of beauty and compassion, concern and love right alongside cruelty and chaos and inequity? What if? Now, I can't say any of this stuff is for sure. This is something that you have to figure out, obviously, for yourselves. 
And so we kind of put the logs on the fire and we'll watch them burn together and see where we end up with all of this. But what if? All I'm giving you is right now is just another theory among all the other theories. But what if? And what I can tell you is that this, for me, allows me to keep on, to continue on, to keep showing up, to trust God, to continue to trust God, even when I see what I see on the news and what I see on social media and in the relationships between people, to keep trusting God, to keep seeing meaning in this world, in this life, and to keep working to alleviate the suffering that is presented to me face to face. This allows me to continue to love life right here, right now, and find that it can be, if I just allow it to be just enough in this moment, this moment, if I just let it be enough, even in the midst of all the unfinished business. What if? Let's pray. Father, there are so many unanswered questions that we have. <laughs> we look forward to meeting you face to face so we can ask them all a torrent of questions. Help us to see that the answers we sometimes so desperately seek are not the ones that we need. That we don't need to know why certain things, but we need to know how to take the next step, how to help the next person's needs that we encounter. Help us to let go of the illusion of security that answering all of our whys and all of our whats would give us for a moment. And just immerse, lean into, and engage the how that you have shouted from the rooftops in every page of Scripture. That's where we need to focus. So help us with that, Lord. It's a difficult thing. Help us to come to some sort of framework that allows us to trust you, to love life, and to see the beauty, even in the midst of everything else that is going on, and never despair that somehow you have left us to our own devices because that's not possible. Thank you, Father, for your constant guidance, for your love and for your attention. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone stand.